Matthew 24, we um, left off at verse 14 last time. We're picking up at verse 15, and I'm going to try to get through the whole thing. Let's see. We are continuing our study of Matthew. And as we um, have stated before, Matthew 24 and 25 is the fifth and the last major discourse of Jesus uh, that involves Israel as she goes into the 70th week of Daniel. Daniel 9, 27, Jacob's trouble, it's also called in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The church and the rapture are nowhere in these two chapters. It is the tribulation, great tribulation, and the second coming. We will see that as we move verse by verse. It will point it out over and over and over again. The three parables dealing with being faithful, ready, and accountable uh, are the parables of the faithful uh, an unfaithful servant or the evil servant, the ten virgins in chapter 25, and then uh, the parable of the talents. All three of them are together, uh, depicting um, um, faithfulness and readiness and accountability. Um, they all deal with the second coming. And so, verse 15, down to 28, we have the description of the great tribulation by Jesus. Jesus has run from verse uh, 4. All the way down to verse uh, uh, 14 through the seven years tribulation. Okay, as we noted. Now he picks up in the middle of the tribulation. The parallel passages here are Mark 13, 14 through 23 and Luke 21, 20 through 24. The abomination of desolation identified here in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. That means that we can't understand it. It is given to us. It's God's revelation. He points to Daniel, the source of the prophecy. Some say this was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphany, but Jesus is quoting it as Daniel pointing to the future. And so there are people who believe Matthew 24 um, has been fulfilled. They're called the preterist view, that everything has been fulfilled, like they believe that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled and there's nothing future about it. We reject that view altogether. You know, all this is still future. Uh, Epiphany was the king of Syria in 168 B.C., and um, he has been seen as a type of Antichrist. Um, he determined to stamp out Judaism, as you know, desecrating the temple, um, erecting an altar of um, Olympus Zeus and sacrificing the pig on the altar and then causing the um, and forcing the priest to eat that pig uh, meat and that was the prophecy in Daniel eleven thirty one, and of course that led to the rise of the Maccabean revolt and that's where you get Hanukkah from the eight candelabra where God provides the oil miraculously for the cleansing of the temple and all. Now others say Titus uh, may have been partially fulfilling it um, by bringing in the Roman standards of the eagle, but um, it, it cannot be because um, according to Daniel twelve eleven, when this takes place, then you can count down 1,290 days and Jesus would be coming back. So therefore, Jesus should have come back 1,290 days after 70 AD when that took place. So it's wrong, okay? So you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Opinions are like belly buttons. We all have one. Okay? They mean nothing. You must square it up with Scripture. Scripture is the authority. Um, Paul and John would not have said there was still future. Again, known as Jacob's trouble. Paul speaks about the man of sin in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation 13. Um, it's all over the place. This is the middle of the seven years, the sign that indicates the great tribulation. Um, he speaks blasphemous words as he enters the temple. Paul makes this very clear. The material given to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is material that we have nowhere else. And um, he had reminded the Thessalonians, though he had been there only three weeks, he says, you know, I, you remember I told you all these things when I was with you. So they knew all about it. Um, he stands where he ought not, Mark thirteen fourteen says. As he helps them build their temple again, and then he declares himself God and demands everybody to worship him, gives a mark that everybody has to take, right hand and forehead. You cannot buy, you cannot sell, you cannot do anything without that. We're headed that direction. 
Many, many uh, decades have been in process of this since the 70s, uh, but really from the beginning of time. But from the 70s, we see a progressiveness of this, and it is just uh, really becoming a reality in our own days. Um, the time duration is 42 months. Revelation 11, 1 tells us in 13, 5. And it's given to us in different increments. You've given us in days in Daniel, um, um, the book of Daniel, and then Revelation 11, 3, um, 1,260 days. You have 42 months, and you also have times, times, and half a time in the book of Daniel. So the period of time of tribulation and great tribulation cannot be mistaken. It's given to us in three increments, and then a fourth increment of the two halves being seven years. In Daniel 7.27, the Temple Society in Israel uh, is making preparations and has all the vestures of the priests. I've seen some of them, some of the instruments. uh, They say they have found the red heifer. Um, I mean, I don't need the Temple Society to tell me that the Bible says it will happen. But it's just stuff that's going on that you see the verification and the progress of this stuff. Verse 16 and 18, the instructions to the Jews regarding the abomination of desolation when it took place. Um, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. The reason for fleeing is due to their lives being endangered by the Antichrist. Probably modern day Jordan, uh, the city of Petra, as Isaiah 16, 1 through 3 tells us. The early Christians, by the way, that took heed to this through um, Luke 21, 21. When Titus surrounded the city with his armies, they fled to the city of Pella, and they didn't die. Only the Jews that remain. Interesting. Eusebius tells us this very clearly. Now, the urgency to flee is given. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. This is verse 17 and 18. Those on the housetop are not to delay attempting to retrieve things from their house before they flee. Uh, Literally, it means to walk from roof to roof till you reach the gate. Um, Let me ask you, how many of you spend your evenings in the housetop? The context says Judea, Israel, has nothing to do with the rest of the world. Prophecy is always in direction to Israel, always. Not the United States, not anywhere else. Very important. Um, those who are at work in the field, likewise, are to attempt, are not to attempt to return home for any clothing or anything like that. Again, this is the middle of the tribulation, not the um, destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. Luke gives us that uh, in chapter 21, verse 20. Um, Jerusalem is encompassed with armies. Uh, Matthew doesn't give us that, so... Jesus never answered the short-term fulfillment, the first question. Only the last two, which really are one, one's a consequence of the other. Um, Again, this is Jewish territory. Jesus is warning the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the church. The church has been removed, raptured. The Antichrist has been revealed. Revelation 2 and 3, the church, message to the churches. Four and five, the church is in heaven. Chapter six, the Antichrist appears. The Antichrist does not appear until he who is hindering is removed. It's in the neuter in Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians two. We've noticed that, and that is the church, who is the witness, the light, the salt of the earth. When the church is removed, then the restraining force is removed. Just stop and think right now. The way our country and our world is so evil, and with this entire global citizenship, if the church was removed right now, what do you think would happen? (laughs) Absolute darkness. Now, don't let anybody tell you that what is hindering is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be removed. Never. The greatest revival will be during the tribulation, great tribulation. Many will be saved. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It will never be removed. God is all present. Very important. And so this is the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. 
Seven years of tribulation. This is the middle of the tribulation. Verse 15 is very, very clear. The abomination of desolation. Verse 19 and 20, the severity of the period is clearly declared. Then uh, sudden and difficult flights would be um, the effect, and it would affect the most vulnerable. It says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. The word woe, as you know, is an exclamation of grief and judgment. Uh, a horrible judgment is going to come over the Jewish people. Zechariah says two of three Jews will die under the hand of the Antichrist. Read it for yourself in Zechariah 14. Very, very clear. Now, the weather and the Sabbath also could, be, could impose greater difficulties. Um, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. So we've already established that the location is Jerusalem. Israel, okay? We've already established that the housetop, the field, it's all agrarian society. It's all regarding to them. Here again now, how many of you have to worry about the Sabbath day? Romans 14, Colossians 2 says, we are not under the bondage of the law. We don't keep Sabbath days, new moons, feast days, or anything else, right? Everything is the same to us. So any Christian organization who tells you that you have to keep the feast and the Sabbath... They're not Christian. They're legalist. Okay? You're not under the Sabbath. By the way, the Sabbath is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, not Saturday. Okay? And you can't do anything at all. All right? Now, the winter would be cold. Sometimes it snows. Some of you have been to Israel with us when it has snowed. And uh, it would restrict their travel. Um, Sabbath definitely would restrict the amount of distance they could go. And the word pray there is an imperative command in the present durative, continuously. The difficult days, the difficult times, the oppression, the persecution, all that goes on. This is um, only applicable to the Jews and still does for the Orthodox who today and me and Shireen, if you go down there drive on the Sabbath, and they'll, they'll, little kids will throw rocks at your car, okay? Uh, they're the ones with the hard black hats and the curls on the side and black coats, okay? And um, they, they're still under the law there. When verse 21, now, the uniqueness of the time period is declared to be the worst of all history. Uh, the identity, we talked about it this morning, of the particular time as stated, for then there will be great tribulation. So once again, verse 15 identifies the great tribulation by the abomination of desolation. Right here now he names it, great tribulation. The word then, again, is a word of indicating time. It's a time marker. The time, literally, the tribulation, the great tribulation, um, looking back to the word when in verse 15. Okay? The Great Tribulation refers to that unique ultimate of one kind that the world has never seen before. Jesus says it would be better to die than to live in those days. In verse 21, the rest of it, the nature of evil and horror is stated, such as he uh, has not been since the beginning of the world until time, no, nor ever shall be. So the severity of the tribulation on mankind will be like no other before or after. We have known some horrible times through um, the last century. We had World War I, uh, which was called the Great War. It wasn't World War I at the beginning because they thought that was a war to end all wars. And then uh, it came World War II. And then you had Korea. Then you had Vietnam. Then you had Iraq. Then you have Afghanistan. You have I all kinds of different things, and many other minor wars all throughout the world. Um, we really are, are, are not a peaceful people. We're not really good. We're good for nothing. Um, the years of war that man has experienced to the years of peace are an insult to God and mankind. It's uh, just the way it is. And simply because someone always wants the last piece of cake or a bigger piece of the pie. It's just that simple. Greed. And power. 
That's what drives man. If you're not walking with God, it won't take long for you to get corrupted. You trust in your flesh. You depend upon yourself. You depend upon your brilliance. You depend upon your ability and not upon the Lord and understand how vulnerable you are and how dangerous you are to yourself and to everybody around you. You will go that way. Because the world has no social conscience, there are no ethics, there are no morals, there are no absolutes today. You can do whatever you want. And they will praise you the more wicked you are. But you try to be moral, you try to be ethical, you try to do something that is good, and um, you get crucified. And so it's an interesting day that we're living in. Verse 22, the only benefit of the time will be its short duration here. Uh, the mercy of God. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So those days being shortened refers to the remaining three and a half years. Not that they're going to be made shorter than 24 hours. No, it's the three and a half years. The days being shortened refer to that three and a half year period. And the reference to no flesh would be saved is to the survival of any person. If it would go any longer because of the plans of the Antichrist and the control, uh, we're going to go through some numbers tonight. By the time Jesus returns, there's not that many people left on the earth in comparison to, and we're going to use the uh, population of the day to make those estimates, and you'll see how dramatic the death total is going to be during this period of time. Um, once again, the recipients of God's mercy... He says, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Context, three and a half years of the great tribulation, right? Then who is the context of the elect? The Jew. Matthew 24, 25. Not the Christian, not the church. We've been raptured already at the beginning of the tribulation. Very clear. Keep your chronology right. Now, verse 23 to 26, we have a warning against spiritual deception. Remember, Jesus opened up the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Olivet Discourse in verse 4 of 24. Let no man deceive you. Okay? He does that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here again, deceiving people. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. The word then, again, is a time marker of the Great Tribulation. He has just named it. He says, then, all right? The warning is against anyone telling them about the return of Christ. They are not to believe them. Listen, we will be raptured. No one knows when. And when the second coming takes place, it'll be like lightning. No one will have to tell anybody. All right? Verse 24, the deceivers with the miraculous will be present also during this time. He says, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The warning is false messiahs and prophets. So there's not only the Antichrist, not only the false prophet, but many other things. And again, at first they will be tolerated, but as we move through the seven years, uh, the only thing that will be left to stand will be the Antichrist and the false prophet. The warning is against their impressive credentials of signs and wonders. Uh, once again, the elect here, the context is the Jew. All right? The love of God for the Jew is demonstrated and stated here, See, I have told you beforehand. Even though he has pronounced judgment in chapter 23, verse 36 to 39, though he has pronounced the tribulation and great tribulation through this chapter, here is the love of God. I have told you beforehand. So they would be ready. The steadfast love of God towards the Jew, the personal responsibility to heed the warning. Every one of us understand these simple principles. When you're growing up, your parent says, don't go there. Don't hang out with that person. Don't do that. 
We understood it intellectually. But if we didn't pay heed to it, we found out the reality of it through the consequence that our parents were right and we were wrong, right? It's the same thing with the Lord. No different. The deceivers will be persistent. Notice in verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. The various forms of lies as to the location of the Messiah. There's always something new. We have it here during the church age also. Uh, the latest was that, uh, uh, that um, red, red moons that were taking place. And the guy did all kinds of calculations and everything else. There was a guy that wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88 and this and that and all kinds of things. And I, Look at the history of all these people that do uh, um, newspapers, last days theology, okay? And, 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 and quote, quote, Christians chase after these things throw their money away with these stupid books. Listen, you've got the original manuscript. Read it. You don't need anything else. Read the Bible. The book of Revelation. The book of Ezekiel. The book of Isaiah. Nehemiah. Zechariah. Matthew. Mark. Luke. Thessalonians. Read it. You've got the original information. Uncontaminated unedited, uncorrupted. What can I say? Verse 27, the reason they're not to fall prey to such deception about the return of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus will not be in secret. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. <laughs> the illustration of this is, is called a simile. Anytime something is introduced like or as, it's a simile. Like you say, he, was, he ran fast as lightning. You don't mean that he was lightning, but that he's really fast. Okay? It's a parallel. No one will miss it when he comes back the second time. And we will be coming back with him. The people he's addressing here, they're looking for us coming. We come back with him. The application is clear. Look at the end of 27. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I told you Matthew 24 and 25 is about the second coming. It's repeated over and over and over again. The word coming is parousia. It means the presence and is used for the arrival of a god or a Roman emperor. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, the Jews. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 28, the battle of Armageddon is now mentioned and identified at the return of Jesus when we come back with him. Parallels with Revelation 19. Uh, the carnage will be great. For wherever the carcass is, the word carcass means dead bodies, corpses. Jesus will destroy the armies of the world with the word of his mouth. As a sharp two-edged sword comes forth from his mouth in Revelation 19. Psalm 2 gives you a preview of that second coming. And uh, the carnage will be um, feasted on. There the eagle will be gathered together. The warning is to be watchful for Jesus is coming as a thief as they are gathered to Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. Revelation 19, verse 12 through 18. Paul speaks about... God coming back to pour his wrath out on the world. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. Uh, it, it's very, very clear throughout the scriptures. God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9. First Thessalonians 5, 9. Very, very clear. The word there for eagle means eagle. <laughs> But some have translated vulture. 
okay, to try to make it fit better. You don't have to. It's, it's, it's just an illustration of the carnage that's going to be there, okay? Uh, other texts say vulture. This happens to say eagle. No big difference. This can only be, he just mentioned the second coming and that uh, the results of the battle of Armageddon is going to be atrocious. Uh, we are told in Revelation that, um, and some of you were with us there as we're standing on the Carmelite monastery there on Mount Carmel overlooking the, uh, uh, the valley of Gehenna there, uh, Armageddon, that there will be blood bridled deep to the horse's mouth. Or 200, 250 miles. That's quite a lot of blood. Okay? The armies of the world will be gathered. That is the only passage you can get from east or from west to east or east to west. There's mountains all around. All the armies of the world, the great generals, have gone through those valleys. Now, God called all the birds to a feast. The context would seem to indicate and interpret what this is, as I've indicated. Now, in verse 29 through 35, you have the return of Jesus described here. The parallel passages, Mark 13, 24 through 31, uh, Luke 21, 25 through 33 also. In 29, the end of the seven-year tribulation is here indicated. The time is very specific. Don't miss it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the whole seven years. Then here again, immediately again, time words as you follow the context. The seven years come to an end. The last three and a half years, the worst ever, 42 months, 1,260 days, times, times, half a time of Daniel. Fulfilled. The supernatural events are also very specific at that time. Immediately, he says there, notice that, okay? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Boy, the non-believers just go crazy over this. They think we're loony. They think we have smoked the big one. Let me tell you, this will happen. This will take place. As miraculous as your new birth was and mine, so will these miracles take place. As God intervenes and uses nature to bring judgment upon this world, as he did many times in the Old Testament, even stopping the sun for a set time, taking it backwards. And using the weather against the enemy. And so, all these at one time. This is a quote from Isaiah 13.10. So a lot of the things that we are um, looking at in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. These are passages quoted from the Old Testament. All this was prophetic of the Old Testament. Remember that Peter quoted the prophecies of Joel in the day of Pentecost completely all the way to the end of the age, not distinguishing the short-term fulfillment of the day of Pentecost and the long-term fulfillment at his second coming. He just prophesied it. Never made a distinction of it. But now as looking back and knowing the scriptures, we know that there's a little hyphen there. The church age. Okay? And that was Joel chapter 2 that he quoted in Pentecost. Look at verse 30. The return of Christ to the earth now is stated. The, um, the return of Jesus is right after the natural phenomena takes place. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Immediately. Then the supernatural. Then the signs of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. The Son of Man a literal man, God incarnate, one who became the Lamb of God, one who died and for your sins and tasted death on your behalf and was able to forgive you of your sins as the wrath of the Father was poured upon him instead of us. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so...
he will appear in heaven. The people will be in anguish. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. Zechariah 13, 6. They will weep knowing that they, uh, upon whom they have pierced. Uh, the world uh, is not looking for Jesus Christ. Um, the armies of the world, again, we've seen they are there to try to stop him from setting up the kingdom. Once again, Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? I will have them in derision. He will laugh at them and destroy them. The world will be delivered from self-destruction. Literally, Jesus will come back and save the world. If it would go any longer. It says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Just as predicted by Daniel in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. The word coming is different from the one that we just mentioned, parousia. It's the word that means to come from one place to another and is used of a person arriving. Very clear. Old Testament uses clouds by, for, for God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, his glory, his Shekinah glory. The angels declare this to be the very detail when Jesus ascended up on high from the Mount of Olives um, at 40 days after. And then um, they told the apostles, why you man stand here gazing up to the clouds in this manner? The same way he has left, he will return. And he ascended up from the Mount of Olives. He will return to the Mount of Olives. His foot will step on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says, it will cleave in two. And there will be a river gushing forth from Jerusalem. There will, topography is going to be changed. And part of that water will go to the Dead Sea. And it will breathe life into it. It will be fishes like in the Mediterranean. And the other one will go out to the Mediterranean. And the whole land will be transformed, transfigured. For the temple to fit on that mount. Right now, the temple of Ezekiel 40 to 48 is the millennial temple. It could not fit on the present temple mount. It's too small. So God has to do some construction, some rearranging. Now, verse 31, the gathering of the Jews is uh, indicated here and stated. The signal is given by God. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Okay, that's at his coming. Okay, this is the next verse. Angels are ministering spirits of God to the heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 tells us the trumpet is not for the rapture, nor the last trumpet of the book of Revelation. This is the trumpet to gather the elect, the Jews, from the four corners or the four winds of the earth. And believe it or not, even as I mentioned it this morning, there are people today who believe that millennialists that believe the earth is flat and they have been deceived by the world. You don't believe me? Go on the Internet. Amazing. And Christians who believe that millennialists, they use that verse, four corners, four winds. Really? I tell you, it is amazing when deception captures a culture, a nation, a family, an individual. Once you have rejected the truth of God, it is amazing the stupidity of things that you will fall prey to. You fall for anything because you stand for nothing. So everything is open. It is amazing. Now, once again, the trumpet is for the gathering of the elect Israel. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3 through 4. Isaiah 11, verse 12. Isaiah 27, verse 12 and 13. And so many, so many others. Um, the church has been raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. Um, now Christ returns with his church at the second coming. Very, very clear. 
the angels reap the Jews at the end of the age in the parable of the dragnet in the kingdom parables that we saw in Matthew 13, 47 to 48. Remember all the kingdom parables that we studied. Verse 32, the parable of the fig tree. The parable is an illustration. Keep this in mind. For those who are on earth before his return. Are you following the chronology? Jesus just come back. Okay? We're still going chronologically forward. The word here is, now learn this parable from the fig tree. The word parable, as you know, is parabole. It means to... to Throw alongside, uh, para to, uh, alongside and bully to throw. And a parable is simply taking something you do know, putting it next to what you don't know, and knowing what you do know, you'll know what you didn't know. Okay? That's a parable. A sower went out to sow seed. They knew they were a great society. They knew exactly what. And he compared the word of God being sown. What you do know, put it to what you don't know. And knowing what you do know, you'll know what you didn't know. Parable. Okay? We get paralegal from it, para. Uh, medic from it, all those kind of words. Now, parables have one central theme. This is the second coming. The theme in these parables is the second coming. And there's one punchline. It is watch and be ready. Verse 36 and 42 will give us that. So parables have one central theme. They have a punchline, and they either compare or they contrast. That's all they ever do. Do not give meaning to everything in a parable. You'll destroy the parable. People do that all the time. And so they create this imaginary creative, and people say, Wow, he is so smart. No, he's stupid. He just destroyed the parable. One central theme, one punchline, Compare or contrast. Real clear. All right? The fig tree is used in the scriptures, symbolic of Israel. Jeremiah 24, 1 through 9. Joel 1, 6 through 7. Hosea 9, 10. Jesus has used it also in Matthew 21, 19 through 20. And Luke 13, 6 uses that. But to say that this parable refers to the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948 would be stretching it. It's not what it's talking about. He's talking about the second coming. Okay? The fig tree is the illustration of his second coming. All right? Of the things they see, the things during the tribulation period. The prophecy of Ezekiel has the rebirth of the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 37. It's a twofold process. The first process is bringing the people back to the land, which we have seen in May 14, 1948. The second step is when God will pour out His Spirit upon the remnant during the Great Tribulation. All right? And God will be for them. So, this cannot be used for the rebirth. Though it's fig tree and the olive tree and the vineyard are used, symbolic of Israel. In this context, it's the second coming. Keep that in mind. Um, verse 32 still, the illustration regards the things, notice, taking place before the second coming. When its branches has already come tender and put forth leaves, you know summer is near. It's an illustration. The parallel is unmistakable. They were an agrarian society, as I said earlier, understanding it perfectly. The time would not be long. A few months. There's th Those who were seeing all these things of the tribulation and great tribulation and the signs and all that, it's not going to be long. It's just around the corner. When they saw the fig leaves of a tr fig tree, the leaves of a fig tree, they knew it was two months of summer. It wasn't six, it wasn't a year. And that's an illustration. It's very, very near. Now, in verse 33, the application of the parable of the fig tree is given here. So you also, when you see all these things, not the rebirth of the nation, all these things, know that it is near at the door. I'm not making light of the rebirth. I'm saying it's not in this context. Are we clear on this? 
The rebirth is Ezekiel 37. He says, so you also, when you see all these things, and the reference is to these things, is in the tribulation and great tribulation. Um, that's the focus completely. Um, we've seen in verse 29 to 31, we, it's talking about from verse 15 to 31, uh, all the way through completely. The certainty, listen, know that it is near at the door, the second coming. The appearance of Jesus in the heavens. Are we clear? You cannot stick the rapture in here. And people do. You can't do that. Look at 34. The generation who sees these things. The ultimate authority is assured. All these things to come to pass. Listen to his words. Assuredly I say to you. This is Jesus speaking. The ultimate authority. The word is Assuredly, as the word amen in the beginning, it means that it is, it emphasizes the reliability, the absolute truthfulness of it. Pay attention, is very important. And the person, again, is Jesus Christ. The specific group of people, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The word generation, genia, means race or family. It could refer to the Jewish race. Okay, because no nation, no race has ever existed without a homeland for more than four to five generations before they're absorbed into another culture or people and they are disappear. When's the last time you heard of a Hittite? How about a Jebusite? Okay, how about a Canaanite? The Jews have done it for 2,000 years because God said he would keep them. Amazing. Some say generation to see Titus, it cannot be. We already gave the number of days that he would have to return. The generation to see the second coming, long-term fulfillment, it's an obvious thing in the context that doesn't even need to be uh, stated. Look at 35. The certainty of God's revelation is repeated and absolute. The physical world is temporal. Heaven and earth will pass away. The heavens and the earth have a lifespan. They will terminate. Second Peter 3, 10 and 13. Melt with fervent heat. We saw that this morning. This will take place at the end of the white throne judgment after the kingdom age. The word of God is eternal. But my word, here's a contrast, will by no means pass away. So that which we see, and it's beautiful, and God had created it for us, not to worship the creation, but to admire it and thank God that he put this little planet and this light of, this light of, of, of where all the planets and all the things perfectly distant from the sun, the moon, everything for our ties, the seasons, everything else, and then he had the nerve to hang it on nothing. That's the God that you serve and I, all right? Amazing, amazing. The word of God, on the other hand, will not have a time termination, but rather be fulfilled. As time rolls on chronologically, every prophecy will be fulfilled to the last one. And then as we run to the end of chronological time, linear time, we will go into the eternity. Out of eternity came time as we know it. It will go back into eternity. With the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem from heaven. Amazing. And so the Jewish people are witness to the authority of divine scripture. They're a witness here to the Lord's sure return. 36 to 44, you have the declaration by Jesus about the inability to know the day <coughs> or the hour. The parallel passages, Mark 13, 32 to 37, Luke 21, 34 to 36. And in verse 36, the inability for anyone to know the day and hour except for the Father is stated. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The word bud marks the sharp contrast between what we do know as certain and um, what we do not know or cannot know. And the passing away the earth compared to God's word. Jesus, in his human nature, voluntarily limited himself for a set time 
And this is one of the areas that he did. Why, we don't know. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says that, um, that being in the form of God, he emptied himself. It's called an antecedental condition. That means he was God before he came. He continued to be God when he was here, and when he left, he was still God. But he emptied himself of his glory, never of his deity. But he became a man and limited himself for a set time in certain things. Jesus being God, he tired, he hungered, he thirsted, he bled, he died. He limited himself as God for you and for me. Okay? He limited himself in this area. No one knows the day or the hour of the start of the tribulation. This is the context uh, of Matthew 24, just as well as no one knows the day of the rapture because they happen simultaneously at the same time. And that's why you find the statement both in Matthew and in Luke. Now, the day of the Lord is the day of God's wrath, as we saw this morning, and the judgment throughout the Old Testament. This is Jewish ground, not the rapture. It's called the day, that day, the great day, day of the Lord. Um, many different phrases we said. And... Um, we have not been appointed to wrath once again, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 5, 9 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Now, both the rapture and the day of the Lord, as we said this morning, happened simultaneously. At the same time, the attack of Russia to Israel, also Ezekiel 38 and 39. And um, they will take the weapons of war there and they will um, burn them for fuel for seven years. Now, First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, there's a contrast, the believer, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should not overtake you as a thief. Okay? Real simple. The day of the Lord begins at the rapture. It begins the seven-year tribulation, moves to the great tribulation, brings in the second coming, the judgment of the nation, the setting up of the kingdom, the white throne judgment, and then the new heaven, the new earth. All of it follows chronologically. And so uh, the rapture marks the fullness of the Gentiles, while the seven-year tribulation and great tribulation marks the, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the time of the Gentiles marks all the, uh, the empires of the world, the fullness of the Gentiles for the rapture. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had the vision, right? The head of gold, the arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then there's a break in between it for the church age and the last empire, the ten toes of Daniel, chapter 2, chapter 7. Iron and clay. Iron and clay don't mix. A type of democracy, but somebody wants a bigger piece of the pie. The Antichrist wins. Okay? And then there's a stone cut not with hands. Strikes the image at the, at the ankles, and the whole thing collapses, and that rock just grows and grows and grows. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth. A rock cut without hands. So everything is laid out for us back in Daniel 2 and chapter 7. Chapter 2, as man sees himself as great empires, the huge image. Chapter 7, the way God sees man and his empires as beasts. Well, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? And so the fullness of the Gentile marks the full number of people to be saved before the rapture. The time of the Gentiles is the empires of the world before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 37, the attitude of the world before the coming of Jesus will be unbelief. But in, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No, it doesn't need exposition. You see it. It's very, very clear. The days of Noah were, um, there were the proclamation of the repentance in view of judgment. Um, Noah, the preacher of righteousness, Second Peter 2, 5 tells us. But the days of Noah, people did not believe. They rejected the judgment until the flood came and it was too late. Same thing in the tribulation and great tribulation. 38 and 39, the life conduct of the world before the coming of Jesus will be as if life will go on as usual. For as the days 
before the flood. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the people were living, carrying on as, you know, they were going to be here tomorrow. Daily life, business, usual, partying, marrying and whatever it was. There's no uh, indication of the evil they're doing. That's understood like the days of Noah. But it's talking about the attitude, the unbelief, the hard heart. The mockery. Second Peter speaks about they mock about. Where's the second coming? All things continue as they were. The very principle of uniformitarianism. Okay? Amazing to me. Until the door was shut. And took them all away. Once again, the focus is their unbelief. Not the evil. Though the evil is present. The word took means to lift or rise. Or to elevate, referring to Noah and his family. The flood came, they rose up in the boat, were delivered, and uh, the others were left behind. The people in the days of Noah were unexpectedly surprised, to say the least, when judgment came and the family of Noah was gone. Verse 39 tells us there in the beginning. They were caught unaware, not because they did not know, but because they did not believe. Willful ignorance. Hardness of heart. Peter says they are willfully ignorant. Not ignorant. Willfully ignorant. The application in verse 39 is so. In like manner when Christ returns. Not because they do not know. But because they do not believe. It's a parallel application. Jesus in the parable of the unjust judge. Declared. There would be little faith at his coming. This parable is always taught wrong. Listen, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And what God, um, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The only correct answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. It'll be unbelief. Wow. Once again, Second Peter 3, 3 through 6. Willfully ignorant. Mocking. Amazing. 40 to 42, you have the outcome of the second coming of Jesus here. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding the meal. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Some interpret this as the rapture, but then is once again a time word. And in context, looks back to the second coming of verse 39 and the beginning of verse 40. Context, context, context. The church has no place here. The church has been gone seven years prior to his coming. The context is like the days of Noah. Therefore, the one taken is to enter the kingdom. The one left is left for judgment. You have to follow the illustration of Noah. He and his family were taken, delivered. The ones left were left for judgment. So this has to be the same application. And the word taken there means to take or to take for to oneself. The indicative present middle voice here. Now, notice in verse 42, the admonishment is to be vigilant. This is the punchline of the little mini parable of the two taken into the kingdom and the two left for judgment. The word watch means to give strict attention and caution, not knowing the time of his second coming to an extent of unbelief. People have to be watching. The word watch prompts the next three parables also in view of the second coming. To be faithful, ready, and accountable. The parable of the faithful and unfaithful servant. The ten virgins, wise and foolish, and the one with the talents. From Matthew 24, 45 to chapter 25, verse 30. And so there are two groups, those watching for the second coming and those who are indifferent, unbelieving, and hard-hearted, not watching at all. Verse 37 through 41, it says, There is no warning to escape in Matthew, as in Luke's gospel. 
And Luke, it says, watch therefore and pray always that you may stand or be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come upon uh, the pass and stand before the Son of Man. That's a warning to the believer for the rapture to escape the tribulation. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. The reason is because Jesus is talking to the Jew here. The church is nowhere in here once again. And so, 43 to 44, <clears throat> the exhortation application in view of the second coming. But know this, that if that master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Those believing in the coming of Jesus during the tribulation are to be vigilant and not to be taken unaware as when a thief breaks in. The illustration is very clear. The image of a thief is used constantly constantly for vigilance through the scriptures the personal responsibility is stated to those believing in the coming they must be ready anticipating the second coming on the earth as jesus comes to set up the kingdom verse 44 the tense is the present durative be ever ready he's not talking to you he's not talking to me in the church we can apply it in principle to be ready for the rapture but the context is not the rapture. Are we clear on this? Okay, very important. 45 to 51, you have the parable of the faithful and evil servant. And you know what? I'm going to stop right there because the next three, that, and it moves into chapter 25 uh, with the five wise and foolish virgins. All those three are tied together. Okay, and then we have the judgment of the nations and the end of it. And so I'm going to leave this. There's many places you could break chapter 24. This would have been a good break right now, okay? Um, because of the amount of verses and because of the natural division. So I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up in verse 45, and we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 25 next time. All right? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your goodness, Lord, and your word. And we pray that we continue to look to you and study your word. And Lord, that we be ready as you uh, say you're coming for us first. And then we return with you, Lord. We're so thankful for your grace over our life, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you don't know him, call on his name. Ask him to forgive you. He died for you. He tasted death. He paid the price for your sin, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If this is your desire, whether you be out there in the world, somewhere on the radio, or over the internet, or here, this is your prayer repentance if you want to be born again. And he's going to cleanse you, forgive you, and make you his child by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.